Black Cats Run podcast, Learn to Fly, episode 3C. Before we get into today's segment of our Learn to Fly episode, want to encourage people to, if you're enjoying the podcast, um, check out, we have an Instagram, at Black Cats Run. We'd love for people to go uh, follow that space. Hopefully, as more people um, follow that, that can become a space where people can share questions or comments or other perspectives that they'd like to see represented, other topics um, that they would want to see covered in the podcast, and generally make that a space for dialogue. So um, if you're enjoying the podcast and you're on Instagram, I want to extend that invitation to you to join us there in that space. So when we finished off our last segment, we were talking about um, the assertion that physiological models struggle to fully explain a lot about today's training in an effective way. And this is despite the assumption or the popular belief that physiological models do know how to do this. You know, and this, I think, concept is something that um, has gotten sort of validation through the merging of like the tech industry with the exercise uh, sports products industry, right? And things like a whoop that's going to tell you or claim to tell you how recovered you are based on certain data that it's collecting. Um, The idea of something like golden cheetah, which might not be familiar to many people, but you may be more familiar if you're a Strava user with the uh, fitness and freshness and form graph on Strava, this thing that can tell you, you know, supposedly what, uh, where you actually are. Uh, the idea of a sports watch or GPS running watch telling you what you should do for your workout, telling you how recovered you are, et cetera, et cetera. And I think for people who've gotten into these sports um, in such a way that they weren't in all of this technology, um, and I'm not, we're not here to be Luddites, I think there's a lot of potential for these kinds of technologies. It's just that some of the assumptions that they might be operating from could be the limiting factor. You know, I would say that Strava and GPS watches and GPS computers for bicycles and this stuff has like added so much to it. It's like certainly made sports more accessible. I mean, like if you can go out and the ability to navigate and not get lost on your bike computer is great. KOMs have made cycling so much more interesting to go out and do this stuff. It's made it easier to, you know, explore and you don't have to sort of stick to the same loops, right? Your phone, bringing your phone with you, you're not going to, you know, if you have a mechanical issue, right, you can call and have somebody pick you up instead of sort of just going out there and hoping that if anything happens, you can handle that. So we're not trying to poo-poo right technology. We're not projecting some sort of a Luddite mentality about this stuff. But we're saying specifically that these technologies, right, they're just expressions of concepts, right? And those are human-developed concepts, right? And, these is, and those are predicated on certain assumptions, right? And assumptions about 
what physiology really knows and what that can tell us. And so people whom, again, come from a space around sport where they're not engaging with this stuff, you know, in a digital technology way, which has become increasingly less common, you know, I think that you're seeing people starting out into this stuff and like getting into it, it's also comes, you know, hand in foot with the GPS watch with all of the, you know, features that you can engage in if you're really into that stuff. But a lot of this stuff to me looks really useless. You know, I think a whoop is a totally ineffective intervention to give you information about where you are. You know, I think that you can tell if you slept well when you wake up in the morning. I also think we know that, you know, things like quality of sleep don't necessarily lead to recovery, right? So again, we're seeing that issue of, you know, how do we like quantify these kinds of desirable things um, in the, you know, in the language of physiology or in the methodology of physiology of athletics? Is that going to actually be effective and getting us to where we want to be. And furthermore, I think that when you've you know not been when you've been brought into these sports or entered into these the cultural space and the training space and the, these kinds of athletic experiences in a I guess kind of an analog way, I think that that is something that causes you to use different reference points. Right. And whereas if your watch is going to tell you, well, this is how productive this was, right? Which your, I mean, my bike computer will tell me how adapted I am to the heat, which is just sort of like, to me, is like a totally useless. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, may as well be fictionalized piece of information. But I can imagine that for other people, they take this stuff and, you know, there would be a tendency to assume I spent you know, at least $200 and some some of these units you can spend $1,000 on, you know, I can understand why the assumption would be that, well, there must be inherent intrinsic value or insight into this stuff or else why would it be here? But that's not necessarily the case. And if you have that external perspective and then you've brought these technologies into your experience of sport later, I think you can understand um, that that stuff is probably limited and it's probably not actually getting us where we want to be. Um, and so this idea, right, that these physiological models are limited but are being empowered and sort of further validated through the sort of popular culture, the sort of popular consumer culture around these sports, right? Because when you see these things and these sort of conclusions and these assertions of this is how you recovered you are, recovered you are, excuse me, um, you know, this is, what you should be doing for your training today. This is whether or not your training was productive or effective. It's just telling you so you don't have to think about that or try to reflect on that, right? And it's simplifying that. And you could make the argument that, well, is that making it easier for people to access and engage with the sport? And I can understand why we would make that argument, but I think that argument only holds up if the conclusions that it's reached are actually valid or insightful. And I don't think they are valid or insightful. I don't think they're helpful. You know, for me, I don't train based off this data. I don't encourage anybody to train based off of this data. You know, all I want on my watch is I want the GPS to work. I want it to be, you know, as accurate as is reasonably possible. I like to be able to see the heart rate and I'd like to be able to see the speed. And all these other features, 
are basically useless. And it's incredible when you go on like Garmin's website and you know, you'll, you'll appreciate that, you know, my uh, integrity to the cause of understanding is so absolute that I'm making sure that, you know, if there's ever a context in which, um, you know, some sort of sports industry sponsor wanted to gain access to our space and our audience, that I have, will have put them on ice. So here I am putting Garmin on ice. Those features, that the, it's incredible the number of features that come with these watches. And I look at them, I'm like, I don't even know what I would really, what's the value of this? And I think you're taking advantage of people's lack of reference and people's ignorance to push this product on them. And that product, you know, sells because what are we looking for? We're looking for that solution. We're looking for that holy grail, right? You know, what is the magic pill that's going to sort of solve all of our woes and allow us to create the performance and the outcomes that we want? And the solution isn't, the answer, excuse me, isn't just that it's, you know, more complicated than that. And to some extent it is. But it's also that it's just not correct, that these things just aren't working. But you can see how, right, the concept we're trying to tease out here to start is that systems like this, you know, come in and then become a part of the popular athletic culture within these different sporting cultures, right, within cycling, within running. And you know, let's just focus in on the idea of the whoop, right? So the whoop is sort of a strategy to tell people right, um, the things that's like so critical, like, can I work, if I do a workout, is it going to go well, right? If I race, am I ready to race well? Now, you'd have to do a study, and the way I would want to do this is kind of the way, you know, economists, like Stephen Levitt, you know, talks about the, you know, Freakonomics author and economist talks about how, you know, with science, people are so reluctant to use real-world data. And this was in the context of, um, you know, him proving that, you know, uh, seatbelts for younger children um, actually increase the rate of fatality, but yet we still insist that they wear them because we create these artificial, um, you know, environments in which we test this stuff. But he's saying all you have to do is look at the crash data, and it, te- it clearly shows you that these systems don't do what they want. And by that same concept, when we're looking at this stuff here in terms of is the data or the information from the WHOOP actually improving performance, all we'd have to do is go out and collect the actual evidence in the real world of who are the people who use WHOOP, like what is your success rate of your workouts and races, and then that compare that against the control group of people who don't use WHOOP. And... To be clear, I am going to engage in some speculation, um, and I feel, though confident from all of the general information that I, you know, that you see and engage with, and just reading stuff on, you know, people's Stravas, right? You get ac- increased access to right to what people are experiencing day to day. I'm pretty confident that the whoop is not leading to anything useful, and I mean, I think, you know, you come back to the idea of what recovery. You know, Gustav and, and Christian, who are not maybe the only athletes to listen to, but I think it's telling that they're going out and they're, you know, defying expectations within the sport of long distance triathlon, within the sport of Ironman triathlon distance racing, um, but also like, you know, showing that there's a potential to go at a higher level of objective performance in terms of what you can split for those legs in that race discipline um, at that, and especially at that particular event. 
And, you know, if, you know, they have, they are clearly dismissive of this stuff. You know, they said, you have to sleep and you have to eat. They don't really subscribe to the use of that stuff, you know. And I think when athletes, you know, clearly would have an opportunity to, you know, promote these products, I mean, who better, right, to promote this stuff than, you know, people dominating in a sport like Ironman where training loads are so high and you would think that fatigue and recovery management is super important. And by the way, it is super important, right? And yet there presumably are, I'm hypothesizing, right? Maybe they have not, they were never approached, right? But like they're not endorsing that stuff. But we see a lot of athletes who do endorse this. Um, you see it like um, in the cycling space, you know, too. And it's easier to see because that, you know, pool of people is smaller. But, you know, you see a lot of whoop um, stuff usage there, people referring to their whoops. And it's like, I just don't think that they're improving their performance. You know, it's the, you know, you're putting, you're weighting the scales in your favor, right? And it's the idea of like constructing anecdotal evidence by just picking the people who are most likely to finish well in races anyway, and just saying, just use this whoop, right? Well, they're, they're going to get those placings in those races probably regardless, right? And I would argue that, you know, data from the whoop, right, is taking away from our ability to reflect on, um, what we feel. And that's overall, I think, a detriment because deferring to a device is, first of all, limiting your cognitive engagement. And when you're not engaging cognitively in the same way, then you're not going to get better. And, you know, understanding your body and interpreting what's going on, that's important right? And interpreting, you know, what you feel in training and then also is a part of the experience because like I did this um, assessment where I, and I sort of, you know, was intermittently disciplined about, uh, oh, there's a, there's a trigger word, disciplined. I was intermittently uh, consistent with keeping and training along. But my freshman year um, in college, I kept notes on stuff um, that I did for 12 months, right? And now this is sort of a moot point because you just upload stuff to Strava and then like, boom, like the idea of a training log is totally archaic now, right? Um, but you look at that and I think it was, I don't remember what the total miles were and that's sort of besides the point. But of that year, um, I think less than 2% of the total miles that I ran were actually raced. So, you know, how we engage in the experience of training is always important because that's like 98% of what we do in any given year. And I would say for a lot of people who aren't following a, you know, cross country and indoor and outdoor track NCAA season, especially in running, I mean, I realize in cycling, partly because the races are longer and you have stage racing, it's not maybe the same. But certainly in the sport of running, you're overwhelmingly training all of the time. And you want to be cognitively engaged in that space because that's where you're going to get better. And there are sort of approaches to this idea of mental training. You know, of course, that's a thing. And it's not a surprise that that's a thing because there's always been this belief, um, you know, that the, the mind and the body have this, you know, host 
um, guest relationship, you know, or the belief, or I guess in combination with the belief that, you know, we have these like core impulses, right? Engaging with those impulses detracts from what we're trying to do, what we're trying to create uh, as our kinds of outcomes. We need to reflect on how we feel in training and be actively engaged in that and not just dependent on some intervention because as we've outlined first, A, that interventionary technology probably isn't as reliant or effective as we think and might just be total borderline, like totally useless in, in some cases, depending on what you're looking to get out of it. And number two, like we can't feel good in training if we're not developing that cognitive skill to engage with that because you can get guidance and directions from these devices that are going to make you feel like crap because they're based on this physiological uh, set of precepts, if you will, that are not predicated on taking the perspective of sport of how you feel good. It's predicated on this like selective population of people, right, who can work through the path of discipline model of expectations and can um, also, you know, demonstrate, right, these consistent adrenal responses to sport and those people still burn out and need these like huge layoffs, you know, of engagement basically with the sport and, you know, any kind of a like um, meaningful way from kind of like a general aerobic perspective to try to like recover their mental energy to then go out and then repeat that cycle of just sort of gradually grinding themselves and down and burning themselves out, um, which is taking an already adverse, a a thing that is structured uh, to have adversity and then just making it worse, not better. And then we also, right, need those cognitive skills that we can only get if we are actively reflective and trying to figure out for ourselves, well, how do I feel? How do I know if I feel good? How do I know if I can do X or Y? And by the way, a little foreshadowing, like you can start to maybe imagine why um, having an improv training concept and having more improvisational skills, if you will, or thought processes are going to be really important to maintaining that positive relationship of I need to feel good as I'm doing this stuff or else I'm just not really going to engage with it. Cognitively also, because training is such a disproportionately huge space of what we practice, especially for sports like running um, versus sports like cycling, where you can spend more time racing because of the nature of the sport, the way in which uh, like specific kind of like body muscular fatigue um, is different. And, you know, you can't, you don't really see, there was at one point a uh, stage race across America, like CC Pyle's amazing foot race. There's a book about that if you're looking for some weird running history to read at some point. But you don't see, you know, week-long grand tour stage racing and running the way you do in cycling. And it's unlikely that that will ever change because of just the way the body is reacting and the kind of like plyometric force of just jumping, right, with with high um, levels of work and impact for what happens with running. So when we go to that race space, we also need to have cognitive skills in that race space, okay? And if we are not, if we're sort of like deferring all of our thinking to these devices, we're not going to be able to race as effectively and we're not going to be able to race well. 
you know, and I think people are probably more likely to fail in their race goals. So then that's a problem because you're not enjoying what you're doing, which at the end of the day, if you hate doing it, I mean, there's other things you can pursue in life. And, you know, and I, and I do believe that it's reasonably possible for the vast majority of people um, to do this stuff and, and feel good. So it's not like it has to be, you know, adverse for certain people, no matter what. But like, if you are miserable, why would you want to keep doing it? Um, you know, but the other aspect is just your, your, if you're trying to be a, you know, let's say elite level person where you're trying to make um, income through this and your results matter for that like additional level of incentive, having that cognitive skill is even more important. And having these devices tell you what you're feeling, and to a certain extent, even if they were accurate, it would still be limiting. Because unless you have a device that is literally telling you when to speed up or slow down, right, like moment to moment in the race, like you need to be able to think and make those decisions for yourself, you know, and that's a part of the sport too, because at a certain point, if you had something telling you to speed up and slow down, it'd be like, aha, we've achieved like the ultimate, apparently the ultimate trajectory, which is to just turn the athlete into a car engine. And then somebody else sits in the driver's seat of that, you know, whether that's the technology, you know, whether that's the coach. Um, And in cycling, when people talk about racing with, you know, panache, I think sometimes that's, you know, used to just sort of be like, I'm watching this race and I want somebody to attack. And, you know, I just want people to start attacking. And I think to a certain extent, that's just kind of like uh, ignorant and it's not respecting you know, that the, you know, the sport evolves strategies and these strategies evolves in these sort of grand arcs, you know, over sort of generation of athletes and the kind of, you know, practices and paradigms that influence, you know, sport across, you know, given five to 10 year, um, you know, arcs of experience. I don't think that the technology inherently takes away from the sport. I think the technology can be there, but I think that then we have to change our approaches so that as we apply this technology, we're not forgetting to engage that cognitive skill set and to focus on using that cognitive process to say, how do we feel good? Because let's also say, let's just say for the thought experience, let's say the whoop nails it and it does exactly what it says it's going to do. That's still not good enough because that's not telling you, do you feel good? That's not telling you, you know, are you having a, are you in a good place? Are you able to be productive? Are you able to engage? And if you want good racing, you know, quote unquote, good racing, you know, entertain, quote unquote, entertaining racing, which, and I say, put that in quotes, because I think that is something that's super subjective and can mean very different things for different audience groups, right? People value different things in terms of, you know, what they want to see in sporting um, competitions and, and what they think are the sort of sporting feats that are worth seeing. I don't think that, you know, removing technology or adding technology has any particular impact. It just has to do with how we're choosing um, to engage with that. And I think if you want to see great races and you want to see the stuff that makes sport exciting, that comes back to the cognitive skills of the athletes. And, and then that in turn is about like feeling good. Because when athletes feel good, they're going to feel confident. And when athletes feel confident, you know, they're going to do things, you know, that are, you know, what we might describe as aggressive, or they're going to start racing with panache, you know, and that when, you know, athletes are throwing the hammer down 
Um, you know, and, and Chris Froome, and Chris Froome was not the first person to do this. We just sort of, you know, rediscover these sort of approaches. I mean, you could argue that Team Sky in many ways is just sort of like the next evolution of postal service. And either they've done that without the doping or they've been better at doing it without getting busted for doping. Um, but like these kind, that's also like racing with panache. You know, you're putting the hammer down, right? And that's an act of confidence, right? And, you know, if we want to see evenly matched athletes, then we need athletes who can feel good and can really fully engage with their, the active training. And so what's the strategy to this? Um, it's not like people don't think about the mind, right? We're not trying to imply that. People think about um, the idea of like mental training. And I think that's something that you've seen sort of an increased interest in publication um, and research on that topic recently. By recently, I mean in the last handful of years. Um, and, and you can, you know, find books about that, you know, how to unlock your mental strength and, and brain training. Um, you know, a book that I've mentioned before, Endure by Alex Hutchinson, which I really enjoy reading that book. It's a great book. So I'm not trying to knock it. Um, but, you know, he talks about people trying to unlock brain power, you know, and I, and I want to say, and I apologize if this is inaccurate, um, but I want to say by like, in some cases, using electricity or some sort of other external uh, kind of like stimulant um, or like agent, if you will, and, you know, agent to like induce some sort of a change, you know, and it, it, it's like, you know, Frankenstein trying to bring up the creature um, to life. And it just reeks of kind of like, you know, old ideas about um, essential spark, you know, and electricity, um, you know, is sourced as such in, in Shelley's novel. And I also think this ties to ideas that, you know, are based around this popular belief that we only use 10% of the brain. I, Morgan Freeman plays a professor in the movie Lucy where, you know, he, he articulates this. So to be clear, there's no evidence that suggests we use any less than 100% of our brain. I mean, give me a break. Rationally, why would humans evolve a larger brain if it wasn't being used? That's a complete contradiction of the principles of natural selection. Okay, so like you're not going to evolve something that has no use because that's going to require energy. And in, you know, a pre-society environment where, you know, survival is much more sort of day-to-day, right, and the act of self-maintenance, um, you know, is much more selective, right? That's why we call it natural selection. You're not just going to involve this huge brain mass, and for no reason, right? And it just nine because that would probably ninety percent of this is just there for no purpose until what? And until somehow we just like magically recognize that we should evolve that to use it, or we're gonna like externally tap into it. Um, so I don't think it's about finding something, right? That is like you know, or unearthing something or that there's some sort of Rosetta Stone like moment waiting um, for us to stumble across. And it's just going to like, you know, totally change the way we think about and understand this stuff. You know, will there be, you know, breakthroughs in understanding of the brain? Yeah, but that's not going to be like 
oh my goodness, you know, this sort of X-Men, all of a sudden people are starting to, you know, do things and unlock magical powers of the brain. Like we use all of our brain, you know, and it, it is, that's the reason why we're alive is because it's functioning. You know, when people receive brain trauma, you know, concussions, like why do you think it has such a significant impact? Because we use that whole system and we really need that whole system to be functional. And I think we're in, I'm going to be a little hyperbolic to kind of emphasize or make the point. I think we're kind of in an era of physiological holy grails or in an era of sort of these super models of training. And I think if we're going to make arguments about the impacts and limitations of those, then we want to try to start to explore into a little bit more about what they are instead of just making these at a certain point, right, you know, we're no longer laying out the premise. We start to just sort of make assertions about something. And I think it is a disservice to the effort that people put into that uh, stuff if we don't really try to like break down and say, well, what specifically is going on and what, how can we validate the perspective that we feel maybe there are holes in this stuff? So obviously there's an incentive to make money and, you know, how can you turn your training ideas into profits? Um, Famous athletes can sell versions of their training schedule. That's one way, right? You know, and and people will consume this. People want to know what people are doing. You know, look at the Jim Ryan story. You know, that's a book that at a certain time, you know, definitely had an impact and an influence um, on people. And people are looking for the answer and people want some sort of a system. Systems have always been a goal, right? It's a, it's more efficient. Um, it's the idea that, okay, we, we have the answers and we can be confident that we have the answers. Um, but the dominance of these models is sort of like this sub-modern period within the broad modern period of sport. So we have like this long sporting century, this long century of modern athletics, and then we have this sort of break point, this point of departure where things um, sort of, we make this differentiation, for example, one way people talk about this is they refer to like the old school. And the old school is kind of like before these physiological models came out. And then books like the Jim Ryan story aren't maybe what people are looking for to understand training. They're looking for these books that have these more kind of specific ideas, like the book Distance Running um, that I talked about in the last segment by Robert M. Leiden, published in 2003. I think one of the most significant and influential books um, was a running book um, by Jack Daniels, who we're not trying to say that Jack Daniels um, is somehow like an unqualified person to talk about these ideas. Um, we've talked a little bit about how, you know, one of the limiting factors with these formulas is like, can the public actually understand them? You know, that's going to be one one limitation. And we want to be fair and we want to acknowledge that. But let's go back to that model. Um, we've talked about that a little bit. And I think culturally, it might be one of the most significant um, introductions of physiological models. And that the, the book is called Daniel's Running Formula. 
um, if we haven't stated that clearly already, originally published in 1998. So uh, here's a key historical concept that I think we can all benefit from using as we move forward. In studying the past, in general, the study of history, we try to recognize that ideologies or events might not have been explicitly active uh, in the contemporary world. Um, However, they still have a shaping effect. So when we say explicitly active, what we mean is that not it doesn't have to be a massive number of people who are directly engaging with or thinking about these things for it to nonetheless have a significant impact. So if you're a cyclist and you're like, well, Daniel's running formula, this is irrelevant to me, I'm suggesting to you that it's not because it's, it's chucking a boulder you know, in, in the pond of how are we thinking about training, because I think it gave a lot of traction to this idea of we can model stuff physiologically. And I think that you could argue that the sort of commercial, social, and cultural success of zone training, which we're also going to talk about, and we're actually trying to compare um, cycling zones to Daniel's running formula and look for what are the similarities and commonalities. And I think the similarities and commonalities immediately become very clear um, and very evident. Um, but you know, these kinds of, this, this has a broad effect. You know, here's an example. Uh, female athletes, I think, are still socially believed a lot of times to be incapable of handling the same training as men. Um, and I have male athletes, um, specific, to be more specific. And I've talked to multiple different people who have clearly this idea as like a defining, you know, an accurate understanding. You might not know, and these people probably don't know, that it was once believed that, and, you know, relatively commonly believed, that too much exercise would cause the uterus to fall out. And my uh, grandfather uh, was a doctor of obstetrics and gynecology for 50 years, so really got to see a long run of some of these ideas about you know, women's health and disclosure. I don't consider myself to be, nor am I trying to promote or imply, uh, promote myself as or imply that I am some sort of an expert on this. And I am sharing, you know, what somebody who I would say was a, a very accomplished um, f- figure in that field, you know, had, had to say about this, that this was, this was a belief that people thought um, the uterus would fall out. So what do you think the impact of that is going to be? So that as becomes like kind of shaping of an ideology about women, what women are and aren't, are not capable of doing. And there's lots of other factors around that. So c- contemporary, right, today, right, these ideologies might not be active, right? Uh, Daniel's running formula might not be as popular or as influential in practice um, as it was um, in the end of the 90s and the early 2000s. But this effect still moves forward, right? And for women's athletics, females' athletics, I think it's important to try to understand, well, why do people have these beliefs about what that demographic group can and cannot do? Because if you see it's based on assumptions like, well, your uterus might fall out, 
Well, the people who work in women's athletics, they don't think that, probably. I would hope not at this point. Um, and they might not even know about that concept. But they might still be enacting a set of ideas that they've learned about you know, how women should be um, engaged with, how f- female athletes um, should be engaged with training. And so this means that we're also talking about an idea that has impacted the broader endurance sporting landscape. And I think this physiological moment, which sort of created this modern period within the modern period, right? I don't know if I want to say postmodern, but it's sort of like upped the ante and it created this divide. Uh, and I think people sort of like, let's roughly give it a date. Let's roughly say, you know, in the ni- in the, by the 1990s, this stuff started to switch, right? And in 1990s, for some of us, doesn't really feel anything more than incredibly recent, but it's now 2023, right? So we're in the scale of sports, 20 to 30 years is a significant span of time. So that it's been a while since that sort of paradigm shift of sport has happened. And because ideologies like the sports physiology ideology causes displacement um, of thinking, people hear things and speak about things differently in general. So you don't need to be directly encountering these models to be impacted by it because it's changing the way we're talking in general, right? And so much of our attitudes and our mindsets and our beliefs about sport are based on the conversations that we hear or that we get to be a part of. And sometimes it's hard to accept the impact of ideologies as a force of historical change um, and just a general force shaping society because the implication is that like our agency is really limited and we're not sort of as like free, independent thinking as we might be. And that doesn't have to be that way. I mean, that's kind of like the whole point of this podcast, if we're going to oversimplify it, is to talk about things like this, to sort of take back that kind of you know, intellectual, free-thinking agency. But we also see, when we began this episode by trying to talk a little bit um, about different examples of like sports technology and how that merges with physiological ideas and however that that takes over cognitive roles that the athlete usually, you know, had to be able to figure out they want to be successful. And we're saying that that's not, you know, increasing the level of athletic achievement. It's just eliminating the kind of thinking that people were doing in the past. So there's another example of like, that's sort of like this like techno ideology where it's a set of ideas that are being discussed in a sense, and spread by every time your device sends you a message, right? And it starts to, that limits our agency too. So we're experiencing this process in a lot of ways all the time. And we can, that's not inevitable. We can have agency, but we have to proactively work to cultivate that, you know? And and graphs and charts, if we go back to kind of, because we're also talking about this, we're saying this physiological Um, movement, this paradigm of physiological systems of training is a switch from we're studying and trying to understand what's happening in the physiology when people are training and doing athletics to, you know what, we feel we know enough about physiology 
And we can just say, based on this physiological knowledge, you know what, this is how you should train. And that's something that you can sell, right? So there's an, there's an economic incentive to do this. And we kind of go from an analog system with like Daniel's running formula or my distance running book and other things, um, publications in that same vein, to now we're saying this digital version where your devices are just sort of repackaging and peddling that to us in a different form. But graphs and charts like are tools to try to model data to see patterns and reach conclusions, but they don't develop competency in athletes or frankly in coaches. And that you know you see practice among coaches is to develop a system and then like give that to people. And you see this in coaches who are hired to work at institutions. They try to develop systems. And if they stumble on to some good ideas or if they deliberately get to these points of developing really effective ideas, you can see those institutions really producing a lot of success. But that also means there's going to be people who are going to be crushed by those institutions who could have been successful otherwise. But institutions, by their nature, tend to be really inflexible. Um, and then we also see the movement of coaches, right, trying to sell things. Um, and, and you can look and you can see all of these. It's a really interesting market space, the industry of like endurance coaching. And they're ultimately about systems. And I think the marketing basis um, is usually that there's, you know, the workouts are physiologically validated. And a lot of us don't know enough about physiology to know if that's the case. We're sort of taking it at face value that people aren't um, using jargon or, or sort of like a, a form of athletic con artist or snake oil. But I think we need to be more open-minded about that because I think the kinds of tools and systems that are supposedly giving to us this to us don't uh, really do everything that they promise to do. You know, and, and, and maybe a, a simple way to say this same concept is just to say that if you know what the schedule is, that doesn't mean you know how to train. And, you know, you can use data to evaluate what works. And I do this all the time. And I, people do this all the time. You know, statistics, you can reach a lot of conclusions and you can see things that are really quite interesting. But it's also easy to generate data that just kind of does nothing. Um, you know, expanding on that concept of knowing the schedule isn't the same thing as knowing how to train. You know, posting spreadsheets of workout data gives info, but it doesn't teach. Um, it may be a, at best, right, you're looking at a motivational tool to work harder, but that's also then based on the assumption that, you know, the problem is the athletes aren't working hard enough. And I think we've called that in a question too. And I think when we start interviewing people and bringing people on, on the podcast, which we are going to do, but I hope we, everybody in the audience understands that, you know, obviously that requires some coordination of, of people's schedules and whatnot, but those will start coming out, um, you know, more and more by the end of the month. Um, and then that will become a staple um, on the podcast. But if you think back to the example I gave of my ECA seat goose egg um, at that cross-country race, well, the spreadsheet said blank, right? Said I was, you know, the alternate for the varsity level squad. And then the actual race results said that I, you know, was a burnt grilled cheese sandwich of a runner. So, you know, like these systems, right? They're clearly limited. 
and they're clearly not always telling us um, what we think. They're not nearly as predictive as we think. And the physiological models of training are basically supposed to be predictive. And that's what Daniel's running formula, in a sense, is basically saying is, you know, we're predicting that if you do these things in these ways, that you'll get better and you'll progress, right? And that, you know, you'll supercompensation will occur, right? You will now be in that Goldilocks state where everything is coming together. But I just think in practice that for so many people, right, just like if you looked at the WHOOP and you looked at the data and you looked at the people who don't use WHOOP, I don't think you're going to see a variance in performance. Like the WHOOP is not moving the needle on that, you know? Um, And I think that, you know, that's true in, you know, these other areas too. We are equipped with consciousness. We already have tools, okay? And that's the system that we need to be engaging, not sort of relying on technology. You can use the technology, and if it's fun to have something that tells you how recovered you are, you know, you can do that. But you need to develop your own model of recovery. And maybe that would be a topic um, for a future podcast, is to try to say, well, how, what would maybe be a better way to try to model or determine you know, what our recovery is? And can you actually do that in a universal or common way? Or is that going to be you know, unique and singular to different people? And when we think about engaging that consciousness, I think we want to say, well, there are feelings to master, right, and control, right, and this sort of like, okay, and that basically means to say, okay, I'm feeling this, but maybe that's not the right conclusion, or maybe I don't want to give that too much energy, right, because that's moving me in the wrong direction. And there are feelings to empower, right, to sort of focus in on saying, well, what has utility and impact, what's achieving and getting us where we want to go. And I don't think that that is somehow proof that that's more crude because like the whoops and um, the GPS watches and the other technologies and, you know, the Strava fitness, um, you know, fatigue and, and form graph and, and all these other things they're also responding to different things, um, and they're not like actively like evaluating that stuff. It's already made the determinations of what at what matters and what doesn't. So it's not a limitation of developing the mind and the cognitive skill of being an athlete um, as a, as a mechanism to you know get closer to that you know feeling good dynamic that we're saying is a linchpin of athletic engagement and athletic experience being both worthwhile and being effective in terms of like actually improving what we can do. Um, I think that's actually proof that, you know, it's a better system because it means it's like active and it's evaluative and it's like constructively adaptable. I was coaching high school track and uh, we were at an invitational meet in the first month of the season. Um, it was one of the first invi- invitations. And there was a coach, um, on the, and I was on the infield um, with you know, my distance running athletes, and we were kind of getting organized and, you know, get, I was engaging with the athletes and trying to, you know, keep people relaxed and, you know, but also talk about their races and, you know, how's it going to feel and what could be happening here and blah, blah, blah. That no need to go into that over much, um, because the important 
part of this story is that there was another coach with an athlete, um, and he was telling this girl um, that to break six minutes in the mile, you know, to run six minutes in the mile, you got to run 90, 90, 90. And then the athlete coach said, okay, tell me what you need to do. Why well, need to run 90, 90, 90? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is not helpful at all. Like dividing six minutes into four parts isn't coaching, you know, but that's like, in a sense, you kind of see why would we now be thinking like that, that that's coaching, because that's an extension of the physiological models is like identify the pace. And that's what Daniel's running formula says, well, you identify the pace then all the good things start to happen. Cycling, right? Identify the watts and all the good things start to happen. So of course I had to, you know, sort of you know, watch this next race. Um, I didn't, you know, go over to this other coach and, you know, engage with them and say, what, what are you doing? You know, that would be rude. Um, but the athlete did not run six minutes because being given this abstract piece of information, this six divided four ways, six minutes divided four ways things doesn't facilitate anything, right? And it's like, well, that's the data, right? But it's not useful, um, and, you know, original question in this learn to fly, right? That athlete did, was not learning to fly, right? They did not grow wings and, and, and execute and, and elevate. They went out and failed. Um, and they looked, my recollection is, was they looked a little pretty unhappy and the coach was nowhere to be seen at that point, which I think also speaks to a limitation of this physiological data approach and the effect that it's having on coaches, Right, that like talking to athletes after the races is just as maybe more important because that's when the experience is the most intense. And that's where like a lot of that cognitive like development that we're talking about can really occur. Because we can this is all fresh in our mind and we can engage with it. We can start to sort of say, Well, what are all the different things that we're feeling? What are the things that are gonna be like useful to focus in on? What things are like the sort of factors that if we can think about those and identify those, that that's going to then maybe going to allow us to like have the performances that we want to have down the future, right? Figuring out, you know, when we talk, that's what we mean when we say talking about trusting our feelings. And it's not just, it's not this, you know, Star Wars, a new hope um, thing where, where Obi-Wan is telling Luke, you know, to, you know, trust your feelings, trust the force kind of thing. We're talking about getting to the point where we're engaging with our feelings in this very rational sense, trying to analyze what equates for what, looking for patterns, right? A part of coaching and the benefit of, of racing and coaching athletes and having coaches when we're learning how to do this stuff is that they should be teaching us or modeling for us, you know, how to look for these patterns and how to test, you know, like, un, you know, in different contexts from racing, but how the hell do we know if we're recovered or training in a way that will make us better. You know, I continue to feel when I go out and exercise, you know, have this th question in my mind that just comes up in my head again and again and again. You know, am I recovering? Am I recovered? I don't know what that should feel like. I never learned. We never talked about the concept of recovery at all in my entirety of my high school running experience or college running experience. I have no recollection of ever hearing anything about that. 
Um, and so then you're out, and then you might sort of start to say, okay, I'm, you sort of maybe start to gravitate towards feeling good, but then you pull up these tables, right, with running paces or your wattage, and you're just like, oh, damn, I'm screwing up big time. Like, I am choking. Um, and then you sort of start to press, right? And then it doesn't lead to improvement. Um, it leads to starting to maybe, like, fall apart. And then, like, the recover- then you're like, okay, I'm definitely not recovered now because now I'm trying to do these things that apparently I'm supposed to do, and now they're just totally failing. They're totally impossible. So these physiological models are, I think, confusing, and they oftentimes create a contradiction with what we feel. And I'm going to try to demonstrate that uh, in the next segment by looking at and comparing um, some of these different experiences with these different models. To do that means starting with you know, looking at, I think, sort of some more general examples and descriptions of, you know, the training that I see people doing that I've sort of collaborated with people on or advised people to do or, or coached people to do, what does that look like? Um, and, you know, how does that compare to physiological models in a general sense? And then we'll also progress in, you know, later segment to looking at, we'll go, I'll use myself as a specific example and look at my data and say, what should it look like in a running model? We'll use the Daniels running formula and we'll say, what should this look like in a, you know, cycling zones wattage model. And then I'll show you um, what do I actually do, you know, in practice. And why is that happening? You know, because we might be assuming when I, as I'm implying, that I don't do what the models say. And we might assume, right, the bias. And if you're experiencing this interpretation, I would ask you or encourage you to ask yourself, like, are you defaulting to what these models have taught us? Because if you're saying, well, that's your problem as an athlete, you know, you're not following the model, you know, is that the right answer? You know, because I'm trying to, I'm arguing that I'm moving towards what feels good. And I want to make the argument that that's more effective for me and for people in general. So that's it for today's segment. Um, I hope that you're continuing to enjoy the podcast. Stay tuned for some, um, you know, interviews with some top secret guests coming up uh, down the road. I'm hoping for those to start appealing on a, appearing, excuse me, on a regular basis by the end of the month. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, I hope that you will, uh, if you're on Instagram, I again invite you, I hope that you'll come and uh, join us by following our uh, Instagram account at Black Cats Run. Want to turn that over time as we um, get more people in that space into an area where people can, you know, pose questions, share um, things that they would like to see discussed or covered in the podcast. And, you know, also like if you have points of view that you think would be represented, or if you have different kind of sources or materials that you want to see the podcast engage with and sort of offer some different you know, perspectives on um, to do that. So I hope you enjoyed today's segment and we'll catch you next time.